For the record, feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. It is the theory of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes. Welcome back to The Pod by Jen Zine. I'm Natalie Bettendorf. I'm a USC senior studying journalism and film, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm joined by the lovely... Hi, everyone. My name is Abir Tijani. I'm a senior at USC as well, studying global health, and I'm sometimes a contributing writer for the Gen Zine. I'm really excited to have this conversation with Natalie today. It's been a long time coming, um, and I'm grateful that the Gen Zine has given us this space to be able to have this conversation as well. Yeah, Abir and I were actually abroad together earlier this spring and before we got sent home from COVID. Here we are, one year, practically one year later, um, on our first podcast together. So I'm really stoked to get into it. Yeah, so today for our debut episode, we're going to be talking about feminism and what it means to us, um, the relationship that we've both had with it. Because it's December, we're very much in like a reflective mood. Personally, I feel like I've been forced to reflect all of 2020 um, and taking the things that I've learned, the things that I've had to reconcile with and putting them into 2021 and the year the year and the world that I want to contribute to. So before we get into the episode, I want you to sit back right now, close your eyes, um, take a moment and sit with yourself and envision what a feminist looks like in your head. Um, Take note of their physical appearance, perhaps their demeanor. Um, What does a feminist look like to you? Does that person look like you? Does that person look like the people that you're friends with? Um, It's really important as we move through this discussion to kind of dissect and figure out what that feminist in our head looks like and how that could possibly be helpful or harmful to building um, broader coalitions. Yeah, I really love that you started with that because I think this year has been, like you said, a really important time of reflection and everyone is going through some kind of identity crisis somehow, you know, like to some scale, whatever it is. I mean, I think we're all thinking about what our lives have been like before they were on pause and what we want them to look like in the future, right? Both of us as young women about to enter the adult scary world, we have no idea, you know, uh, who we're who we're going to become, right? We're just in that process right now. And a big part of that is, you know, being a woman in this country, in this world, and uh, really defining what it means to um, be a feminist in that lens, right? Because um, as we know, not all women are feminists um, and not all feminists are women either. So we need to mm-hmm. really dissect uh, what we mean by this. So the first thing I want to do is jump into a little history um, and chat about that for a second, because I think it's important to understand what we're talking about when we talk about feminist history. And also how we learned it too. Absolutely. That's really important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the ways that we have seen feminism in our own lives grow, which is what you and I have talked a lot about, um, right, of how that's maybe changed a lot for us and the ways that we're taught feminism in school, which, you know, we learn about the waves, right, the waves of feminism. Uh, That metaphor is a way to relate the women's movement of the 60s and 70s, that tumultuous period, right, where um, there was a lot of uh, social change, uh, social movements happening, 
and it related it to the women's suffrage movement earlier in the 20th century, right? But then those different waves come with different generations, and I just know that there's something that's wrong with this uh, metaphor of a wave, right? Because when you think about a wave, you think about when it relates to social change, having a unified agenda, right? Everyone is on this together on the same set of ideals that we call feminism. Um, but we have to acknowledge that the reality of gender activism has always been a fight with stark divides. And that's something that feminist historian Linda Nicholson said back in 2010. So, you know, I want to give her credit for that, for coming to terms with those critiques of what these waves of feminism are. In a general sense, what white women are fighting for is not what black women are fighting for. These are not mm -hmm. the same battles when it comes to the right to exist, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking about being in elementary school and learning about the 19th Amendment and, like, how huge of a deal that is and how conveniently um, the fact that Black women were left out of that conversation was omitted from my education. It was something that I felt like, I feel like in general, I've been having to go back and relearn a lot of things because yeah, things have exactly. details, really important details have been left out. Um, and then we move on to the 60s, 70s counterculture and like the feminine mystique that we all learn about in yep. American history and <laughs> a push, whatever. Um, but it's like it's women of the Black Panther movement. It's Black feminists during that time um, that are up and coming and really, I th I think building what feminism is truly um, that are also left out of that conversation because a lot of the feminism that was coming out during that time was about like from from like the white female perspective. It was about gender pay gaps, I think, and like really being able to open your own bank account and have financial freedom and things that are really important and things that women have been left out of the equation for too. But it, it, it was it was more about like adding on to American exceptionalism and individualism more than it was about community build, building. Um, meanwhile, we have black feminist theory that's really digging deep and like looking at the looking at the root causes of these issues and trying to expand people's perspectives beyond just like okay like I I think individual liberty is really important but also after you have that individual liberty what are you doing in order to help other people right. um what do you how are you like lifting as you climb you know and I think that that was something that definitely for whatever reason got um conveniently left out and it's in the same way that now we have kind of the white upper middle class feminist ideal our generation that's up and coming and we're seeing these same patterns rise again just like with a different focus so totally I really love to I, we were doing some readings for this podcast because you know I have not been in school this semester so this was like a group project for me <laughs> but um I was reading your writing project for your um writing 340 class right and you mm -hmm. wrote a really incredible essay about you know promoting the black feminist theory and what that might look like uh to develop that curriculum better in American high schools right and something that you talk about that relates to to how black women fit into this, you know, I hate to say it, but new wave of feminism that we might be entering is this idea that uh, Taylor Crumpton is writing about, right? In saying that this quote where you say, however, they fail to illuminate that America cannot continue to burden black women with constantly saving its own 
its democracy while white women are granted forgiveness for their infidelity mm-hmm. and are allowed to benefit from white supremacy. I want you to like expand on that a little bit more because that's what really gripped me about the, this, this first introduction where you're saying that there's this discrepancy about what's expected between white women and black women when it comes to what they're fighting for, but also who is granting them that forgiveness. That forgiveness is very key to maybe what these ideals are expected when it comes to a social movement like feminism. Yeah, so I want to use an example that's been floating around social media um, recently. There's this lady on, there's this Nigerian lady on Twitter named Nkechi, and she's talking about how um, Tiffany Haddish was asked to host the virtual Grammys for free. And she was just basically saying how a lot of the times people think that it's, um, something to be celebrated when black women are invited to the table and celebrated in an institution when in reality it's black women that not only um help to like break down the barriers of these institutions but frankly make these spaces better and she was just saying how a lot of the times um Black women are looked to save a country that has no interest in saving them, you know, and saving their children and saving their communities. And we also saw that recently in the election where, like, there was a a lot of fuss about Stacey Abrams and black women uh, voters, particularly in the South, like, for lack of better terms, saving this election and more importantly, I guess, saving America's democracy. But that's not the first time that black women have done that and black women always show up um, across gender, across class, across income um, to save a country that ends up not giving them the flowers that they deserve. And frankly, at this point, I'm thinking, I don't know if those flowers are worth it to begin with, you know, if like this is a repeated cycle. Meanwhile, we have white women dutifully and um, religiously in a way doing things that contradict that um and doing things and being part of um being part of coalitions that end up being harmful not only to themselves but you know to other people as well and i think that a lot of the times like white white women have been able to get by by being like co-conspirators in white supremacy because we have this whole like i'm oppressed underneath feminism thing right, so i right. don't you know like i i get the short of end of the stick too but if you compare that stick to my stick as a black woman like that stick that stick is miles and miles and miles longer than my stick ever could be yeah Do you know what i mean definitely and then you talk about like the victim mindset too that often comes with white feminism as well too like something that we are dissecting and have to when it comes to white feminism is the ways that we have to talk about what women are fighting for and what white women might be fighting for can come off as threatening, I think, to other women in this fight when there is this victimization that's happening of my struggles are the same as yours. We are both women. We are going through this together. And it's like, how do you unite with that? And is that the right word to use? Like, do white Mm -hmm. women victimize themselves? I mean, that's very general. Not all do. But do you think that's the right way to frame it when there is this lack of acknowledgement of the differences in the fight? To answer that question, I want to talk a little bit about about, I guess, my own personal relationship with feminism yeah, and absolutely. 
kind of how that's like changed because I think for up until very, very, very recently, probably in the last year, year and a half or so, I've always felt that my blackness and my like feminist ideals were at odds with one another just because I felt like in certain spaces I had to pick one or the other like okay you're gonna be black today or you're gonna be you're gonna fight for feminism today but you don't get to do both and it's like why do I not get to do both and part of part of the reason is because like when I enter when we enter a lot of feminist spaces whether we realize it or not what ends up happening is that like it we end up conforming to the to the white gaze like whatever is palatable to the white gaze of that feminist space do you know what I mean things like the gender pay gap let's use that as an example that's something that we can all agree on objectively in America like men get paid more than women however if we really want to break it down and look at okay what are white women getting paid versus black women versus latina women versus asian women versus indigenous women etc etc um versus transgender women and then adding their races on top of that. Like there's it's there's so huge. much nuance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's so much nuance that gets omitted. And because of that, like, I I think that recently I've become way more empowered and way more emboldened to, to not compromise all of the different identities that I yeah. happen to be a part of and be like, if I'm going to have a conversation with you about feminism, like un- unfortunately or fortunately, I'm going to have to bring up race because there's ways there's like a there's a word for the 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 type of oppression that black women face misogynoir that's like very very unique and very 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 much something that needs to be brought into these conversations right so I think that I think that it's less about trying to find similarities in one another's struggles because I think that's when you can really it, it, it that's when it can kind of get like disrespectful and that's yeah. when you you find people eclipsing other people's struggles just to say like oh look at me I'm suffering more as opposed to being like here are some parallels and here are ways in which I need to introduce nuance into my conversations because I Yes, I share oppression with this other person up to a certain extent, but after after a while, it's going to start diverging. And when that starts diverging, I need to figure out where can I leverage my privileges in order to make, you know, like people that are part of these communities' lives easier as well, where I can. In the example of like what white white women can do in order to be in order to like leverage their their proximity to white supremacy, yeah, to help like black indigenous transgender etc etc women totally totally and i i love that you brought that up too because i think it's important to acknowledge that white feminism is the easy way to go if that is what is coming to your mind you know at the beginning of this podcast and you maybe pictured someone who was white Mm -hmm. maybe you know a middle-aged woman maybe a younger girl it might not have maybe a hillary clinton maybe (laughs) hillary clinton there's just all these things that we have to think about of what stereotypes we're holding about what a feminist is and if it is that is conforming to white feminism like i think that it's time to really break that down right and reconstruct it because what does it mean when you have this very sectional idea of feminism right that it Mm -hmm. is pertaining to white women and it is and that might not be on purpose but it might be unconscious when you think about 
oh, it just gets too messy when you add the X in, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it gets too messy when you talk about transgender women or it just makes it too complicated. It makes it too hard for the fight against sexism and the fight for equality. And if we're sitting down and thinking about what makes feminism what it is and why it is so controversial per se, right? Why is being anti-racist controversial, right? Like these are things that we have to talk about of what's coming to mind when we think about what progressing forward means and what it means to actually be an activist in something because it has to be personal, like you're saying. And I, I mm-hmm. would say that my own journey with feminism has been um, unique in the sense that I you know, grew up in Berkeley. Um, and this is a, you know, a place that is very special in terms of gender activism and very open in my high school. You know, I feel very fortunate, like it wasn't perfect, but these conversations were happening and, you know, we were able to do call outs of people who were maybe not, um, intersectional in their activism or who weren't coming out and supporting walkouts that we had when there was a racist incident on our campus. Right. So, Mm-hmm. For me, it was really about attending vagina monologues, right? My friends were in this production and would be talking openly and doing these monologues about, you know, female sexuality and what it means mm-hmm. coming to terms with that and being able to say the word vagina, right, on stage mm-hmm. in front of parents and people and being able to own that for themselves. And so I love that that was kind of the first realization for me just as a sophomore in high school of being really empowered hearing women and watching women that I knew talk about sexuality so openly. But I think that came to a new head when I got to college and Me Too was really coming to the front stage now, right? We see the Me Too Which was co-opted, which was like, which was started by a black woman and then, you know, co-opted by a white female actress. And many people don't know that. That's another thing, just like a little caveat Um, A lot of the times, if there's something, if there's an idea out there that you're like, wow, look, this is amazing. There's more often than not, you should probably dig a little deeper and see if there's a black woman behind it that hasn't been (laughs) credited appropriately for that. Because there's there's a laundry list of examples. Um, Me too just is at the tip of the iceberg with that. Absolutely. And that's something that we can dig deeper into with Um, looking into the Women's March as well, right? Like that Mm -hmm. was something that was also important to me in college for understanding what intersectional feminism looks like because I'm sure a lot of you listening to this were, if you didn't go to the Women's March, you at least saw pictures of just how it turned into a bigger movement than for women. Um, Specifically, it turned into, you know, fighting for environmental justice and um, fighting against racism. Gun control. Gun control, right? Like all these social issues turned in bigger and I kind of think about it of what kind of feminist I want to be and I and this may be also coming from my own privilege but I just think about the way that white feminism is it's so boring it is so like something of the past that we can no longer tolerate in this country we're talking about equality it has to get into the complicated right quote-unquote complicated stuff but why is that complicated to us that's the core of it right why is white feminism the easier route why has that been kind of the baseline and what we're talking about more absolutely absolutely just to um bring it all together there's this quote from this article that i read by the guardian i mean from the guardian sorry and it kind of 
it kind of ties in what you were talking about where it says since in its inception the women's march has faced criticism by many within the feminist community the march and its participants we heard from many critics marginalized native women disabled women women of color trans women and jewish women to present a very safe white middle of the road protest um keying in on the word safe here where you were safe. kind of talking yep. about how exactly yeah like <laughs> you you said that white <clears throat> feminism is a little boring like I would go further and to say that it's definitely really safe and it definitely makes people I think it's a feel-good thing to get behind I think it's hard still to get people to get people to get behind feminism but I think it's a lot easier whenever the uh, status quo happens to be from the white lens do you know what I mean because I was just thinking about it as you were talking I was like oh my god like it's so crazy that the default like what people just kind of what a lot of people recognize as feminism at the helm of that is white women you know because if you start talking about like the specific the specific things that um disabled women have to go through or native women or other women that are from marginalized identities it really gets messy because it really you really have to sit down and like reconcile with the the history of you know, this country and how it's dealt with people from those communities and then add the the complexity of being a woman on top of that. Um, and also, I think that it it just contributes to, to gatekeep, gatekeeping, ooh, hello, <laughs> to gatekeeping <laughs> a little bit of um, femininity and feminism as well too because it, I think it's really weird that there's a there's a sense of like this is what an acceptable feminist looks like and like mm-hmm. this is what I default to. Um, right. But yeah, I really, really want to get into this conversation because it's kind of jumping off of what we talked about about a month ago, and it's based on an article that mm-hmm. you and I both read. <laughs> you know what I'm gonna talk about, mm-hmm. what I'm gonna say. So from the New York preface, Times. <laughs> Yes, we are talking about the article from the New York Times Magazine. It was published back in late October, and it was a daily um, episode on the uh, New York Times Daily Podcast called Kamala Harris, Mass Incarceration, and Me. It's a feature article written by Reginald Dwayne Betts. He's really kind of recounting his own reporting on Kamala Harris, but he was actually incarcerated himself as a black man. And, uh, you know, what his own view of prosecutors is, right? And it's, it is very in favor of Kamala. But you and I had a really interesting conversation about your personal feelings of what Kamala means for this country, what she means to you. And mm-hmm. it, it is not the popular opinion and maybe you have your your own thoughts and I found it really enlightening so I would I would love if you could chat a little bit about that and your feelings about this article and your feelings about Kamala let's go (laughs) (laughs) there's another article that we read as well for our our little um you know just doing our bits bits and pieces of research yeah our study sesh for this podcast and it was published in The Cut, and it's called In Kamala, I'm Surprised to See Myself by Rebecca Carroll. And she is a biracial Black woman that writes an article about Kamala and just what it means uh, to have the first female Black vice, black and Asian um, vice president in the United States. And it's interesting because I think it touches a little bit on all the complexities and 
muddiness of my feelings whenever Kamala got elected. Um, But there's a quote that I wanted to pull from that really quickly where Rebecca writes, Black girls are forever the daughters of the words of Audre Lorde. I recognize that my power as well as my primary oppressions come as a result of my blackness as well as my womanness. And therefore my struggles on both of these fronts are inseparable. And yeah, so that's the quote. And because these struggles on both of these fronts are inseparable, obviously they're going to be inseparable with Kamala Harris as well. And obviously um, when you also kind of take into account her history with Uh, being a prosecutor which the article by um what's his name (laughs) the article by Reginald Betts Betts uh talks it touches on a little bit too it really starts to I think um break break away at the the white feminist ideal a little bit I remember seeing on social media how many people were so excited whenever Kamala um was elected and um I guess rightfully so (laughs) because it is a big deal I feel like my brain kind of skipped over how big of a deal it was um in terms of her getting elected I I kept I think thinking about the the complexities of her past as well and just I remember too with the vice presidential debates whenever Mike Pence was like speaking over her and you know like the way that he was treating her and the way that he was talking to her, I instantly thought, like, he's 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 speaking to her this way because she's a black woman. Because if she was, like, a blonde white woman, yes, he would perhaps be condescending towards her, but, like, less so. Just, like, the difference in treatment right. towards Kamala versus the, the white female moderator at that debate. Like, the differences were very, very clear to me. And yeah. I remember seeing a lot of uh, girls, white women in particular, that were just kind of, like, yeah, Kamala's really showing him, like, that's not how you speak to a woman, da 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 And I was like, okay, girls, like, it's really not that simple because at the end of the day, he wouldn't have been speaking to you like that, you know? So <laughs> right, I'm like, who's right. going to break it to you? <laughs> like, who's going to tell you that she had to she had to take on that tone, she had to take on that demeanor because she's been in these spaces with men like Mike Pence and she understands that, like, you have to, you, you have to go above and beyond to really assert yourself and stand your ground yeah. and she's lucky because she's a light-skinned woman because if I had done that you know people would have been like oh my god she's so aggressive just because like I have dark skin um and they would have been like she's so angry she's so aggressive even though we even if I had to use the same words even if I had used the same facial expressions and et cetera et cetera um so there's layers to it and then at the same time like so many people were so excited by the first and it's and there's value in in being the first of something. But what I said to you the other day is the fact that I'm personally very um, unenamored with the con- with the concept of people being first at something because once you start peeling away at the layers of like what is really underneath, you know, being the first of something, it doesn't feel as special. Like being the first female vice president being the first female vice president of color being the first female black vice president in the United States like there's so many different layers of oppression that are right underneath that 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 make that victory less sweet and then you add on top of that someone who who's um prosecution prosecutor is that a word her past her yeah. past yeah, as yeah, a prosecutor <laughs> um has been less than favorable to the communities that she's now, you know, giving, 
giving her acknowledgement and lauding in her acceptance speeches, you know, uh, thanking black women and thanking people from her black um, sorority, while at the, also at the same time, like working as a prosecutor that has hurt people from these communities and being from Oakland, no less, you know what I mean? So it's, it's really tough because I think she was someone that a lot of like girl boss, like, wow, feminism means, you know, optics and, and being a placeholder in these like institutions. I think that she's someone that people were really, really excited for in that sense. However, that I don't know, like, I was like, I still, this is this is a good starting point historically, but we could have done so much better. You know, something that might be what a lot of people are thinking about now with what you're saying about Kamala, which is that aren't critiques of Kamala inherently rooted in some form of sexism? Can you speak on that a little bit too? There are absolutely critiques that are about Kamala that are going to be rooted in sexism. For instance, I remember seeing an article around that time that was talking about her outfits. And I also remember seeing a tweet being like, no yeah. one would ever like talk about a man, like a president, a vice president elects outfits, you know, and that's yeah. definitely rooted in sexism. And at least for me personally, because I have the lived experience of like being at the other, being on the other side of receiving um, comments rooted in sexism, comments rooted in racism, and then comments rooted in like the double whammy of both. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have a yep. clear, I, I can kind of like sift through them a little bit clearer. And me disagreeing with so, some of like certain aspects of her policies, me disagreeing with her past as a prosecutor, me disagreeing with whatever it may be, does not mean that I'm going to sit down and be like yes that means she's very much deserving of being of being attacked with sexist or racist or whatever comments you know like and I don't and I just I don't think that it's ever going to be appropriate to use the small little bits and pieces that you get to really bring down someone with heavy-handed forms of oppression like that's never going to sit right with me um and it doesn't mean that you can't be critical of her because I, I definitely think that you should be critical of like anyone that's in a um, position of power with the objective of wanting them to be better, more importantly, wanting them to do their job better. Totally. No, I really appreciate that you touched on that because that was something that's been really on my mind. It's it's hard. It's really hard to reconcile um, those experiences too when I myself... I don't have to separate my race from my gender. And so seeing that through lenses and having these conversations is exactly what I think needs to happen when we talk about, okay, the fight's not over, right? Because I've been, I've been thinking that. I see this everywhere where, you know, people who are very progressive, um, like myself and like you and like a lot of our friends where, you know, Trump losing this election was a a really big win, right, of where we're going in this country. But, you know, this whole thing of that comes right after it, right? The sentence that comes after it from us is this is not this is like just the beginning, right? We have a long way to go. And especially given how we look at Biden's cabinet, it's not very progressive. I mean, we're not going to make massive massive strides, but we're going to you know, come back from where we've been the last four years. But I think that this is where we're going. And I want to kind of use this to segue into our kind of final 
um, section about looking at the future, right? Um, and talking about the coalition building across industry, race, gender, and class. And I think the thing that I really wanted to convey with um, this conversation also is that these conversations are so important. There's no objective right in either of our um, positions on this. I mean, these are our lived experiences, how we came into feminism and how we see, you know, what the best kind of feminism looks like for us and for the world, but that's always going to be subjective to each person. And so I, like the only thing that I really want to do is encourage people to ask, not just women, but anyone in their lives about that exact question that you asked at the beginning of what does a feminist look like to you? And, you know, how do we start to pull away from, oh, women are feminists, right? Mm -hmm. Just women are feminists. Mm -hmm. That's a woman thing. Right. <laughs> That's a woman thing, Cis right? It's not. Yeah. And cisgender women, no less, yep. you know, exactly. <laughs> like it's very, exactly. yeah. It does not matter if you're a cisgender woman um, or not, right? That is in play with what we're looking for in this uh, conversation about what equality looks like and what the fight looks like, right? Of what we're talking mm -hmm. about. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, before I even answer like, oh, what can we do? How do we, where do we start with building these coalitions? I'll just start by saying like, the I'll, big I'll say a couple of the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> the big questions. I'll start by naming a couple of like the feminists that have lived rent free in my head and like whether or not they still are occupying. But for instance, for a really long time, what the feminist in my head looks like was Susan B. Anthony. Me and my homegirls don't like Susan B. Anthony. But, you know, for <laughs> but like for a really long time, it was Susan B. Anthony, right? Because it was just like yep. 19th Amendment, like women can vote, such a big deal. Wow, wow, wow. And then I came to the really ugly realization that if I was, well, I wasn't born in this country, which is its own separate <laughs> issue. But if I, you know was a black woman uh, when the 19th Amendment was being ratified, like that would not have included me. So then I was like, right. oh, so then what's the point idealizing this conception of feminism that literally does not want anything to do with me? Like Susan B. Anthony did not want anything to do with me or women who looked like me uh, for that matter. She and was not your ride or die. Like she was not showing no, up for you and she people was, who look like you. She was no. not at all. And then, you know, there was like the feminine mystique feminist in my head as well or like the the 10 things I hate about you like Julia Styles feminist yes. <laughs> that was also just being in mean. my head just being while. straight up mean to men <laughs> yeah mean to yeah. men yeah and yeah. once again she was like skinny blonde white like just like really <laughs> taking a hand hold of yourself and I was like damn like this great movie though favorite. like not to hate on that movie one of the best movies I've oh it's literally wise, like please go watch it if you need to feel good oh it's literally <laughs> my like favorite movie in the entire world like I literally watch it like seven times a year at least um but anyway, yeah, so it was, like, this weird, like, um, being really mean and insidious to men and, like, doing everything on my own, and I'm like, ugh, that's just meh, not really my vibe either. And then we have, like, Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie, which is the author of um, Americana. She's, like, you know, you've heard the Beyonce song that's, like, what's a feminist, etc. Yeah, she's close, way, 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 way closer to me in the sense that we're both Nigerian and we both weren't born in the United States and we both, you know, like, have lived experiences that have 
a lot of different intersections. But then recently too, like there was things circulating on like a literature Twitter. My favorite side. Um, of her, but like not being inclusive of transgender women mm. in in her feminism. And then I was like, well, damn, all right. <laughs> so yeah. now I've sifted through all these people and I just kind of realized at the end of the day, what the feminist in my head needs to look like me, as in it needs to be me yes. and she needs to have all of the ideals that I personally believe are right. And also that means giving her the space and grace to continue to expand that perception of feminism, you know? And I think that that's what Absolutely. everyone should be doing. Um, if you're a white woman and the feminist in your head is a white woman, then oof. whoever it is in your head, like it needs to be someone that is cognizant of all of the new, like, Okay, you can't be cognizant of every single nuance in the entire world that ever existed. However, it's someone that, you know, like recognizes their faults and recognizes their shortcomings of where they could fall flat of understanding, but also trying to understand or at least trying to respect and intake the opinions and perspectives of, you know, as many people as possible. Because like we've our conversation today on feminism has been very like America centric. But, you know, what a feminist in in Bangalore in India looks like versus what a feminist in Nigeria looks like versus what a feminist in Singapore or in Colombia or wherever else it might be looks like is so completely different. And there's, like you said before, no way is perhaps better or worse than the other. I say that with many caveats in mind. However, like including all of these different versions of feminism you know as much as possible i think is really important because that's how we start to build coalitions when you start collecting people's stories (laughs) that sounded kind of weird but when you start (laughs) like let me get my points for collecting stories anyways when you start um collecting people's stories when you start listening to people's experiences when you start realizing that like oh yeah my feminism is limited because I'm part of a certain class and I need to look to people of a different class in order to understand this better or I'm part of a certain education level I need to look at people um, from different education levels to understand xyz better I think that's when these coalitions can not only be built but maintained and fortified so would love to know your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I would really second all of that that you're saying. And I kind of wanted to expand a little bit on what you're saying of where we need to go in listening to people's um, experiences and stories. Because when we're contributing to feminism and like this ever expanding definition, right? Like we don't have a set definition of what it is because we shouldn't right? We need to be including it so that all these voices are contributing to the coalition that we hope would um, be the most inclusive. And that's not a set thing. There's no one destination for how we can, you know, set that that point. It's going to be ever-changing, just as we talked about in the wave metaphor, right? It comes in waves because there's different generations of people who are entering and leaving this world. And I did want to hone in on the point of you know, where men fall into this. If you identify (laughs) as a man, right? Where men fall into this conversation. And I think that there is a lot of harm in kind of the men-hating mentality that comes with feminism. And that's not just from women. I mean from also men who have a bitter view about feminism. And that's what comes to mind, right? Like, I hope there are guys listening to this podcast who are thinking like, 
at the beginning when they're saying, oh, feminist. <laughs> like, I hope, I hope there's a few of you out there because genuinely you're in it too. Like you're in this fight as well because there are needs that are not being met there. And feminism has to include those voices as well. As much as that might anger some people out there, I just, I think that that is something we have to account for because I think that what that speaks to is that men feel, right? Some men feel that feminism can be aggressive, which is problematic in and of itself, but there's also this layer to men feeling they are also not being heard. And I don't personally don't view that as threatening. I think a lot of women can and should because we live in a patriarchy. Like we're beyond acknowledging that. Hello, people. Like we that does not mm-hmm. need to be restated. But if we're talking about, you know, where men fall into this conversation, we have to. This is about, you know, all people um, you know, fighting for something together. And that's what our version of feminism looks like. And so that's absolutely something we need to talk about as well. So that that's my final point of, you know, where we're moving forward. Men, you are in this too. Like there's no doubt about that in my mind, and it has to include um, voices from um, people who don't identify as female. This is this is going to be a continued conversation when you and I start our separate podcast. Um, oh my but god! <laughs> I wanted to plug this article. You and I read it together over the summer. I'm pretty sure the miseducation of the American boy. Yes. Um, who is it by? Yes. So that is by Peggy Ornstein. It's an excerpt from her book called Boys and Sex. And that was actually published in the Atlantic. And it's an incredible, incredible article. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Thank you for bringing we'll that link up. it. Yeah. We'll link we'll it. Link, link it below. Like the rest you know. of the readings from today. Don't but forget yeah, to subscribe. Like... Turn on the post notifications. <laughs> all of that. <laughs> yes. All of that. But yeah, I just wanted to plug that article because I think it's um, a really great starting point. I don't know. It was really illuminating for me personally because um, my friends know that I make lots of jokes about like men being trash and stuff like that. I say that in good fun, but in all seriousness, like that, that article I think was, it's a really great segue into kind of understanding whether you want to or not, how sometimes boys and men can feel left out of these conversations and why they react so brashly. And to be honest, just for the simple fact that we live in a patriarchy and we need men to leverage their privileges where they can and the spaces that they hold power, which is a lot of spaces because we live in a patriarchy. um, You know, having, giving them the spaces, I guess, to voice out those kinds of things i don't know just like read the article and let us know what yep. you think because yeah, you'll, you'll understand where i'm coming from <laughs> exactly but. exactly no i think that's a that's a great place to end because i think that this is obviously a continued conversation so there is no end to it um but i'm really really glad we got to have this conversation please um hit me in a beer up on social media like and I'm not saying that to plug I'm genuinely saying that because I have this appreciation for when conversations are continued from people we don't know and um you know our dms are open I think that this is a really cool starting point are they um, <laughs> no I'm kidding. I'm kidding she said not from people I don't follow <laughs> But I think that this is like a really cool place to um, start this conversation. And again, we're really appreciative to Gen Z for allowing us to hop on here. Anushka for putting us on Zoom together to do this. <laughs> um, we'll be back. <laughs> we'll, we'll be back. This is not the end of it. <laughs> 
on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Natalie R B E T T. Wow, my Instagram and Twitter has nothing to do with my name. It's A B U U U R underscore. <laughs> so if you can find me, good luck to you. If you can find me, then I'll respond to your message. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks for joining me today, Beer, and we're really excited to hear from you guys. Peace out. Hey. Yeah, thanks guys. Have a great day.